Good morning. Blessed Palm Sunday to all of you, those who are present here, as well as those who are watching online. What a joy it is for my wife and I to come back to FCC and greet you and thank you for your partnership in the gospel in North India for the last number of years. As Pastor John Paul said, you have been partnering with us in training workers for the Lord's Vineyard in the Indian subcontinent. And we are very, very grateful to you. And a few of you have come, Sharon being one of them. We were introduced to this congregation through Ken Thornton a number of years ago. I don't know Ken is here for the first service. He'll be here maybe the second service. Uh, David Hackenthorn has been there. I understand he has moved on to Park Street now. So we are grateful to all of you for praying for us and helping us uh, through your sacrificial giving to missions. Thank you for your heart for missions. Those of you who don't know us, let me just introduce our work and ministry in two minutes and then we will enter into the word of God. Is that all right? Um, my name is George Chavani Kamanil. I'm not speaking in tongues. That is my name. Uh, many people think I'm speaking in tongues when I say my name. Uh, and George is my real name. A lot of people ask, is that your real name? Yes, that is a real name. You know, George is very important for us because King George ruled us for a long time. And Saint George is the patron saint of our church. When I say our church... We come from a community called St. Thomas Christian Community down in South India. Very few know about us. We are one of the most ancient Christian communities in the world. St. Thomas, the Apostle of Christ, came to India in 52. Did you know that? He was killed for the gospel in India. Before he established, before he was killed, he established a number of churches. My wife and I come from that tradition. We're very proud to say that. Some of our people will do anything to defend that. Uh, but unfortunately, our community remained a, an inward-looking community and didn't share the gospel with the rest of India for centuries. No time to elaborate on that. My wife and I came to this country when we were very young, in the early 70s, first lived in Minnesota, then moved to California. Our children, we have two sons. One is here today. Both were born in Southern California and raised there. And we, my wife and I, were working there. And then the Lord calls us to Northern India. Northern India is foreign to us. Language-wise, culture-wise, food-wise. And as Pastor John Paul already said, one of the least evangelized parts of the world. And the Lord gave us grace to start a theological seminary. We didn't think it would be a seminary. We thought it would be a small school training a few workers. But by God's grace, we have become the largest fully accredited theological seminary in northern India, serving all the Bible-believing churches. We are an interdenominational seminary. And within this 34, 35 years, we have been able to train and send out over 3,000 men and women to preach the gospel, as I said, to all Bible-believing denominations and fellowships. 
Our children born and raised here, they, they live here. Both moved to the East Coast. Our older son lives in Medford with his family, our younger son and his wife, Roshini, who are here. They live in New Jersey. And uh, so we have a good excuse to come to the East Coast because all our grandchildren are here. And our grandchildren are the best. <laughs> Don't argue with me that. <laughs> what a privilege it is. Uh, my wife is also here, and um, it is so sad we have to wear all these things, and we cannot hug, but soon this will pass. Soon this will pass. Well, I hope that gives you a quick introduction to the work. If you'd like to know more about, you could go to our webpage, which is goodnewsforindia.org. Just write goodnewsforindia.org. You can learn more we don't disclose everything on in social media because of obvious reasons. We have a lot of issues in our land. I won't say too much about that. Well, I took a little liberty with the text today and I wrote to Maureen about it. I hope Maureen communicated that to you, Pastor John Paul. I added two scriptures at the end. So instead of 1 to 11, 1 to 13, because I believe there is an important theological point that is missed in the ordinary celebration of Palm Sunday. We don't add those two scriptures. So I hope you will bear with me in that. So Matthew 21, 1 to 13, triumphal entry and cleansing of the temple is the title that I have given to the message, which is not at all uh, anything extraneous to the text. It is right there. We call Palm Sunday as the beginning of the Holy Week, as Pastor John already told us. The most important week in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us know that. We grew up learning these stories, reading these stories. Jerusalem was a very crowded city. Did you know, according to one author that I researched, he said there could have been as many as 2.5 million people there. That's a lot of people in the ancient world. It's a lot of people. And Jesus had set his face resolutely to enter the city, knowing fully well that danger awaited him. And he gave detailed instructions to his disciples in the preparation of his entry. This is all in the text. I don't need to expound on it. You know it. And he came as a king. A king riding on a donkey. Of course, in fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, which is quoted by Matthew in the text. And it was customary in those days for a king to ride on a donkey, though he would, it sounds strange to us. Whenever a king wanted to come in peace, he would ride on a donkey, as it can be seen in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 33. Whereas, when a king wanted to come in judgment, he would come riding on a horse, on a stallion. Well, the king who rode on that day into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey will come one day riding on a horse. Revelation 19, 11 tells us that. He came first in peace 
to bring peace to us. And I hope all of us have accepted him as the Prince of Peace in our life. Because there will be a day when he will come to judge both the living and the dead. So in case you have not received him as the Prince of Peace, please do. He comes riding on a donkey, declaring the purpose for which he is coming is to give us peace, to give the world peace. We all know Zechariah predicted this. And as I already said, Matthew mentions it in the text that we read. And of course, he was given a reception worthy of a king. Mark 11.7 and Luke 19.35 tells us that the disciples put their coats on the donkey for Jesus to sit on. All three synoptics tells us that many in the crowd were spreading their clocks for the donkey to walk on. They respected the king so much, they were willing to put down their clocks for the donkey to walk on. And some others cut tree branches and spread those before the donkey. I wonder whether these three groups are showing three levels of dedication and commitment to the king. Just think about it. I'm not going to elaborate on it, but I would like you to think about it. The disciples were willing to put their coats on the donkey, but many in the crowd were willing to put their clocks on the road, in the dusty road, in that muddy road, for the donkey to walk on. And most of these people who did that probably had only one you know, living in America, we might think, oh, they were spreading their spare clocks or coats. No, no, no. This was the only thing they had. Imagine the dedication and the commitment it took for them to do that. While the others cut tree branches. The text is full of echoes of the past. For example... When Simon Maccabeus, all of us are familiar or most of us are familiar with the Maccabees, entered Jerusalem about 200 plus years earlier, people did do the same thing. They spread tree branches before him. He was coming as a victorious ruler after defeating the enemies of the people of God. In 1 Kings, 2 Kings 9.13 we read when Jehu was proclaimed the king. People spread their clothes before him. Thus we see the mass was expecting Jesus to be a victorious king. From this action we can tell what they were expecting. They were expecting a victorious king who would destroy the Rome, Roman power and liberate the people from their slavery. That was their expectation. Not only their actions, but also what they shouted tells us that truth. What did they shout? Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? It is a quotation from Psalm 118.25, as all of us know. Hosanna literally means save now. Save now. Save us, O Lord. If you look at Psalm 118.25a, you see there, 
the divine name of Lord God Almighty is used there. Yahweh calling up to him. The people of God are crying. William Barclay, the New Testament scholar, comments on it and says like this. It is a people's cry for deliverance and for help in the day of their trouble. It is an oppressed people's cry. To their savior and their king. Of course we know. I don't need to elaborate on it. The people of God's people. The elect were oppressed. Severely oppressed. And they were expecting the Messiah to come. And bring them literal deliverance. From the tyranny of the Roman rule. That's what they were expecting. And they knew the scripture. If not all, at least many knew the scripture. Because the people of God were a people of the word. It was taught in every synagogue. It was preached in the temple. And they knew Zechariah 9 and 10. But they didn't know that there is this huge gap between 9 and 10. Cannot blame them. It's very difficult. The prophetic gap. It's a good example of what theologians call. Prophetic gap. Zechariah 9.9 9 says. Rejoice greatly daughter Zion. Shout daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey. On a cold. The foal of a donkey. And that took place. And the people immediately expected verse 10 to come true. Because what does verse 10 say? I will take away the chariots. Here Lord God Almighty is speaking. Yahweh is speaking. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim. And the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. The people were expecting that. They had no idea that there is this huge gap between these two scriptures. By the way, I grew up, as I told you, in the St. Thomas community, Christian community, with tremendous heritage. But I didn't know Jesus as my Savior. I was a nominal Christian. I I knew here and there the Bible. I knew the Lord's Prayer. I knew Psalm 23. My mother was very, very strict that unless I prayed the Lord's Prayer and read a portion of Scripture, she won't give me dinner. (laughs) She was not a cruel mother. She was a wonderful mother. But that's how she disciplined us and taught us the Word of God. But I didn't know this Jesus. I thought he was just another God because I grew up with friends who believed in myriads of gods. Until I was in my late teens and attended a Bible study. Where the preacher who taught the Bible. Opened the word of God and taught something that captured my attention. He would keep on saying. The biography of the Lord Jesus Christ was written centuries before he was born. And that too, not in Christian books. Are you understanding my English? I don't speak like you all speak. 
Oh, that's the wrong part of the country, right? <laughs> I tend to put the accent on the wrong syllable all the time. So please listen carefully. He kept on saying that. The biography of the Lord Jesus Christ was written centuries before he was born. And that too, not in Christian books. Now it puzzled me, what is this man saying? And he went on to show that the Old Testament books are not Christian. We have just borrowed them from the Jewish people. You can walk into any synagogue and they'll show it to you right there. And of course in the original Hebrew and Aramaic and all those things. He said in those books. And this is one example of his Biography being written centuries, six centuries before Jesus was born. Zechariah prophesied this. And then, of course, there are amazing other prophecies. Many, most, a number of them will be fulfilled during the course of the Holy Week. And you know them, I don't need to tell you. Psalm 22, amazing prophecies concerning crucifixion. Written in a time that crucifixion was unknown in the world. No time for me to go into that at all. But there was no way for them to distinguish and realize, understand this prophetic gap. So as a result, they got confused. Just like we get confused about scripture. Scripture at times can be very puzzling, very difficult. And when we read the scripture, my wife and I, often she's, she would raise questions that I, being a preacher, I'm supposed to answer, but I cannot answer. Wow. Those same prophets who did prophesy about his first coming does talk about his second coming. And we eagerly wait like the early church waited. And we eagerly pray, come, Lord, as we read in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul quoting a little phrase that the early church used to use in Aramaic, the mother tongue of Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. That's our hope, because all these things that are happening all around us points to that day that no power on the face of the earth can solve. The difficulties and problems we face. And therefore we too pray. Why is this gap? Why is this gap? I think what Jesus does immediately after he entered the city gives us a clue. And that's why I added those two scriptures into the text this morning. Took the liberty without even asking Pastor John Paul. What does he do? Well, before we talk about that, let me point one more thing, which Luke tells us, Luke alone tells us in 19, chapter 19 of his gospel, and 41 on, he tells us one, another thing Jesus did. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. Here is another mystery in the word of God. Hidden. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and then and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. Sad words. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. My dear brothers and sisters, do we recognize the Lord? Do we recognize his coming to us? Or are we careless as the saints of the Old Testament? He is here today. Is he looking at me and crying? Saying, why are you not recognizing me? Again, just in case there is one here this morning who has not recognized the Lord, may I plead with you, please do. He comes in peace. He comes because he loves you. He came because he loved me. After he enters the city, what does he do? He cleanses the temple. Jesus' action reminded the crowd of what happened almost 200 years earlier. Another cleansing of the temple that was fresh in their memory. Because in 175 BC, a cruel man by the name Antiochus Epiphanes had not only conquered Jerusalem, he had desecrated the temple by killing a pig in it. In the inner sanctum, in the Holy of Holies. And making offerings to Zeus. And then the Maccabees, the word Maccabee literally means hammer. They rose up and defeated the Syrian forces under the leadership of Judas. And cleansed the temple and rededicated it. That is the story that is celebrated by the Hanukkah. That we all are familiar with the celebration, the, temp- the, the celebration of lights. 2 Maccabees 10.7 describes the celebration in the words very similar to our text today. If you have opportunity to read it, you will see it. But there is a critical difference between the cleansing of the temple that was done by Judas Maccabeus and the cleansing of the temple that Jesus does after he enters into the city as a king, riding on a donkey. To understand that, we must understand the difference between two simple Greek words, neos and heron, used in the Bible to describe the temple. Many English translations have temple, cleanse the temple. The newer translations have elaborated on it. Neos is the holy of holies, in which only the high priest can enter once a year. You know I don't need to elaborate on it. Whereas Hiron consisted of a number of other parts of the temple. The court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the Israelites, and the court of the priests, commonly called the holy place. Which part of the temple did Jesus cleanse? Oh, not even a religious Jews will dare to pollute the holy of holies. They cannot even enter. Oh, by the way, did you know Jesus, while he lived on this earth, though he was the son of God, couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. 
That has puzzled me all the time. Why? Because he was from the tribe of Judah. He was not even a Levite. He was not a priest. Only the high priest can enter. You see, the one man who lived without sin, he couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. Isn't that kind of... See, it was not even the court of the priest that they polluted. The part of the temple that they turned into a den of robbers was the court of the Gentiles. Very important point. Why Jesus cleanses it is answered by the scriptures he quotes. You see, ethnic pride, ethnic pride, an attitude that I am superior to you, had closed the mind of the people of God from their responsibility. You see, God never intended his house to be an exclusive place for only a few people. God never intended that. I don't have time to prove it, but it is in the scripture. If you don't believe me, go home and read 1 Kings 8, where Solomon prays the prayer of dedication. Particularly 41 to 43. Where he clearly states that the temple was meant for all nations. Temple was meant for all nations. But by the time Jesus came, not only were nations, Gentiles excluded, a significant number of Jewish people themselves were excluded from the temple. Did you know that? Did you know that? A significant number of children, physical children of Abraham were excluded from the temple. For example, shepherds were not permitted to enter the temple. Tax collectors were not permitted to enter the temple. And a number of other professions. Because they were not quote unquote holy enough to enter the temple. You see what pride does. Particularly ethnic pride does to people. Oh may it not happen to us. May it not happen to us. May we not forget that Jesus came for all. A-L-L. Oh. He demonstrated it in his life. He first chose 12 disciples. Why? I asked that question to a children's class a while back. And a little child stood up and said, Well, we buy a dozen eggs. So Jesus wanted to have a dozen apostles. No, no, no. That was not the reason. He chose 12 because there were 12 tribes in Israel. He came first to his own. But he didn't stop with 12. He chose a 70 or 72 depending on the textual variant. No time to go into it. Significant number in the Bible because in Genesis 10 the table of nations is given. There too is that textual variant. Isn't that interesting? 70 or 72. Signifying that he came for all. He came for all. 
all nations. Listen to his words in Matthew 8, 10 following. Time is running, so let me quickly. Commenting on the faith of the Roman centurion, a Gentile. Jesus said these words. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But, oh look at this tragic scripture. Tragic scripture. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May that not said about us. May we not assume that somehow we are privileged and others are not. Of course Matthew's gospel culminates in what we call the great commission. In which he uses that same word from Isaiah. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And all of you know that word that is translated into English. Nations is the word from which we get our English word ethnic group. So I like to read the great commission by reading. Go make, and make disciples of all ethnic groups. And there are thousands of them still waiting to hear the gospel. As we celebrate this holy week. Let us be mindful why Jesus came. He didn't just come for me. He came for all. And if I understand his heart. I must do all I can. To fulfill his heart's desire. I love that song in which we sang. God break my heart. That's a prayer that the founder of World Vision made popular. I had the privilege of working for that organization for a number of years. God, break my heart with the things with which your heart is broken. What breaks God's heart? People who do not know him. That's why he cried when he entered Jerusalem. That's why he cleansed the temple. This mystery was hidden in the old, but it is revealed now in the new. So we have no excuse. Apostle Paul uses the word mystery to describe this truth that was hidden in the old and revealed in the new. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So as we remember the suffering, death and resurrection of the Lord. Let's not forget that this, is, this was done. By him for all. Let's dedicate ourselves. To fulfill the purpose for which the Lord came. Why did he come? In his own words to seek. And save. That which is lost. In the words of Revelation 5.9. To seek and save the lost from every tribe. And language. And people. And here is that word again. Athenos, ethnos, ethnic groups. In my land of India alone, still over 2,000 ethnic groups are waiting for the gospel. Over 90 languages are still waiting in India to get a portion of scripture. Do you know that? Do you care about that? 
May the Lord help us as we celebrate the Holy Week to obey the heartbeat of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Help us, O Lord, to see your heart. Break our hearts with the things with which your heart is broken. Your heart is broken for the lost. And you still cry as you cried when you entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Give us that spirit today, O Lord. And may we be obedient to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.